0: I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory.
1: And when they see the Palestinian uh, uh, refugee, the former resident, leading the tour and telling them about the life here, his family, they again have a chance to realize not only their own attachment to the land, but also his or her attachment to the same place. And what most striked uh, those who I interviewed after the the tours uh, of Zechrot was how much was missing from the Zionist tours, how much wasn't seen there and that they could now see. And they even said we could see the whole country differently now, even after one tour. So they were astonished by how exclusive and excluding the Zionist tour that they were so familiar with was. Uh, My name is Ifat Gutman, I am a senior lecturer at the Department of Sociology and and Anthropology at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel, and I study culture, politics, activism, um, especially in the context of conflict um, or post-conflict and reconciliation.
0: Yifat explains that to fully understand the challenge of reconciliation or peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians, we need to recognize that it isn't just a conflict between two sides.
1: But in fact, a conflict between three parties, not two. One party is Jewish Israelis, citizens of Israel um, that came before the state, uh, uh, Zionist settlers in Palestine, um the other side are palestinians who lived here before 48 before the establishment of the state of israel and the third party are palestinian citizens of israel and they are uh, 21% of citizens so you have Two groups of citizens within Israel, Palestinian citizens and Jewish Israeli citizens, and Palestinians who are not citizens. And some of them, many of them, are governed by Israel in the West Bank and Gaza, um, which are called the occupied Palestinian territories, since 1967.
0: Efforts to resolve the Israeli Palestinian conflict historically focused on 1967 and the Palestinians living in the occupied territories. The breakthrough seemed to come with the Oslo Accords in the mid-1990s when an agreement was reached for an exchange of land for peace. But the optimism captured in the 1993 photo of then-President Bill Clinton standing equidistant between Israeli leader Yitzhak Rabin and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat as the two former foes shook hands proved short-lived.
1: In 1993, the Oslo Accords between the Israelis and the Israeli leaders uh, Rabin and Peres and uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, leader of the Palestinian um, PLO, um, signed an agreement with uh, Clinton as a middleman that featured a pragmatic, interest-based approach that basically decided to ignore the history of the conflict and tried to divide the land to enable two states side by side, Israel and Palestine. But in fact, um, it um, divided the Palestinian territory in a very um, problematic way that created enclaves and restricted movement. In any case, the, it was a kind of an initial plan that later on, if it works, Israel withdrew from uh, various territories in the West Bank and Gaza, and um, and um, the Palestinians uh, came uh, started their independent um, government um, and policing. Um, but the next steps of Oslo did not uh, come true, um, and this agreement failed and changed into violence and, and and separation between Israelis and Palestinians in 2000. So the 2000s, uh, the kind of aftermath of the Oslo Accords was a time of of, of escalation in the conflict um the second upheaval in the in the appeal uh, in the Palestinian territories um uh, the building of the of a separation wall by Israel between Israel and these territories um there was also the October two thousand events where protest inside Israel among Palestinian citizens was um met uh, um Live ammunition and and um, and thirteen were killed. so this was a very violent time and separation between Israelis and Palestinians outside of Israel. Um, this is a summary of what happened until the time in which the groups that I um followed were established. So they were established not in a time of reconciliation and peace talks, but in a time of escalation in the conflict around 2000 or the early 2000s. And
0: and this is your point. You, you, You think by the time you get to the 2000s, these two sides are moving further and further apart, but you see these initiatives making significant headway
1: Right. So Oslo, basically, and the failure of its pragmatic interest-based, not looking at the past, um, approach, brought a shift to a different approach, a different discourse, uh, which was justice-based, and not practice pragmatic. Uh, I'm sorry, a pragmatic uh, a discourse, and here um, basically the failure of Oslo. Uh, and, and these memory activists were very much involved in the Oslo approach of binational meetings, people to people meetings. It was almost called the, the people to people industry because it was so much in the Oslo days, so uh, much um, common that Israelis and Palestinians are meeting face to face. Uh, with the assumption that if you know someone personally, then uh, all the stereotypes uh, could be eliminated. But then after Oslo, uh, uh, both governments and activists, peace activists on both sides, changed their approach. The governments, the governments uh, uh, re- re- demanded public recognition of justice, of historical justice. Uh, Tom Hill puts it that both uh, the Israeli and Palestinian government um, uh, demanded public recognition of the other side of an unpalatable and intolerable truth on the other side. Uh, they wanted the other side to acknowledge their own, theirs, their historical narrative, their historical right for self-determination in the territory. And it resulted in a zero-sum game of historical narratives and recognition claims that instead of reconciliation that you expect from historical justice and recognition, it actually reproduced the rival conflict position and fortified the impasse between the two sides. And then the activists, peace activists, not everyone, not the entire peace camp, but only actually the far left in Israel, um, moved from binational reconciliation or recognition of the other side to one sided reconciliation and recognition of the other side, or in other words, instead of mutual recognition of the faults that each side inflicted on the other, Jewish-Israeli peace activists and also Palestinian peace activists in Israel, and these are members of the groups that I studied, um, uh, called for recognizing the power hierarchy and the responsibility of Israel to the so called refugee problem. And this is where the memory activists enter and why they are focused on 48 and not 67. Um, and also interested in uh, commemorating Palestinian memory specifically. Palestinian memory that was silenced in Israeli society and Israeli mainstream political discourse and education system. Um, that is why they turned into that moment uh, with this paradigmatic shift post-Oslo.
0: But the, the, the consensus for memory activists is, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian-Israeli, is that, as you said, acknowledgement, the burden of history really has to be placed primarily on Israelis, right? And, and that. Uh, that uh, acknowledgement has to come first and foremost from the Israeli side to to move forward.
1: Right, which is exactly what Oslo didn't do. They didn't place a, a responsibility or demanded accountability on either side, basically, or certainly not on Israel. And here they call for exactly that. This is a... Asymmetrical conflict is what they say, uh, instead of a reconciliation that often, in other conflicts as well, uh, tries to kind of uh, show a symmetry that doesn't usually doesn't exist, not in the past and and neither in the past nor in the present.
0: You mentioned that there's a, there is an explosion of civil society initiatives in the 1990s uh, that comes out of this period of optimism. And that's where many of these memory activists have their roots. So they go off in a different direction, but they are products of that particular time period.
1: Right. So this um, reconciliation industry during the 90s where uh, um, Israelis and Palestinians meet uh, in in face-to-face meetings with the aim of meeting each other um is an approach and practice that was later criticized as something that indeed reproduces the power hierarchies. So in the inside the room of the meeting, uh, you are you you're supposedly are friends, but outside the power hierarchy continues, the structural um differences continue. And also, it was hard, according to these memory activists, to talk within the room about 48. You could talk about the occupation, you can try to, you know, undo the occupation, which is what Oslo started to try and doing, but 48 was still a taboo. So you couldn't talk about the establishment of Israel and the uh, massive displacement of Palestinians. So Israelis came to these meetings wanting to talk about sixty-seven, and if you, we solve that with the two-state solution, you know this is what seems to have been the problem. But Palestinians also wanted to talk about forty-eight, and Israelis didn't want to. Um, this was a uh, part of the. Uh, experience that uh, memory activists later on reported about and after Oslo failed they were intrigued to go into the past that Oslo ignored and talk about 48 and actually learn about 48 because this was indeed evaded intentionally in their school curriculum and their upbringing as Jewish Israelis
0: So if you would look at these three Uh, memory activist initiatives i mean how would you what are they what is memory activism i I feel like i've talked about this in different episodes but i've never really defined it
1: right so um memory activism uh, is i i see it as the strategic utilization of memory looking at memory as the central platform for social and political change. And memory activists use memory practices and narratives to counter the official perception of the past. Usually they want to change it, but sometimes they also want to protect the official version against change. In any case, they work outside state channels or vis-a-vis the state. Um, Even if you want to uh, defend against change, you have to produce something new or you have to engage with meanings about the past. Um, By doing so, by choosing memory and memory practices as a platform for change, they acknowledge the centrality of memory to group identities and to ethno-national boundaries, not only For the state or from above, but also from below in the grassroots or civil society level. So memory activist groups emerged around the world after the memory boom of the 80s and 90s, and I've seen them in various places around the world since 2000. Um, It's a crucial field of transformative social and political action that we now see more and more. It received uh, public and media attention in recent years. For example, with the decommemoration of civil war statues in the U.S. and other online and on-site protest events. So it's easier to kind of point to it now. Um, but um, but uh, but a, a definition is is necessary to make sure that we're talking about the same phenomena, and certainly different um, episodes of the podcast uh, touch upon such efforts um, in the civil society and grassroots level. Um, in Israel, Palestine, I followed three groups. I could only actually find three groups of peace activists who then, around the early 2000s, chose uh, this highly contested memory, the memory of the Nakba. The Nakba, which is the catastrophe in Arabic, marks this uh, displacement and dispossession of some 7750,000 Palestinians during Israel's independent war in 48. From their localities, localities, and the prevention of their return until today, that I've mentioned, um, and and this is again at the heart of the Israeli Palestinian conflict, um, and and as I mentioned, the, the this uh, uh, topic is highly contested. The history and memory of the Nakba has been deliberately erased from the landscape and evaded in mainstream Israeli uh, Jewish. Israeli-Jewish memory, commemoration, school curricula of both Israeli-Jewish and Palestinian citizens. And the group that I studied focused on Akba Memory as a way to cross the ethno-national boundaries between Israelis and Palestinians. They were informed by a global reconciliation model. Here again, it's a global initiative. There's a global reconciliation model of post-conflict truth and reconciliation, also in general uh, uh, addressing violent histories as a path for reconciliation. They were especially um, interested and tried to adopt the South African model of truth and reconciliation, even though they're operating in active conflict and not in a post-conflict situation. And they sought to publicly air, recognize, and address the atrocious past of the state of Israel, their state, towards Palestinians as a trust-building step between Israeli Jews and our Palestinians that might enable future reconciliation. So they focused on truth, learning about the past, documenting it, uh, circulating it, recognizing it uh, as, as, a, as a hope for future reconciliation.
0: But you're you're saying when you begin this process, uh, there's very little awareness of, of of the Nakba, right? There's there's uh, it's not included in, in the national education system. Uh, it's it's a there's a memory of it that's being kept alive uh, within the Palestinian population, but. Uh, it, uh, the wider awareness of it, t- it takes takes time to be achieved, and that doesn't really happen until you get to this, uh, or the course of the two thousands, right?
1: Right. So uh, even in the so called peace camp, the left in Israel, uh, the, the, the most organizations were uh, focusing on sixty seven on the occupation with the hope of undoing doing it, uh, uh, solving the conflict. But um, the three groups that I studied, and I'll talk about who they were, who they are, uh, soon. They uh, saw it as ground zero that has to be um, addressed in with with the model of this global uh, reconciliation, truth and reconciliation. Um, And talking about 48 is uh, not only a silence contested in the Zionist narrative in this zero-sum game, but also it uh, delegitimizes or asks questions about the very establishment of the state. So it's not about an occupation that maybe could be undone, but it's about the very establishment of the state, that moment, uh, and the price of... Refugeism, Palestinian refugeism, um, that, uh, um, that it carried. Uh, so this was a taboo, very contested, even again among the peace camp, um, of the Oslo years. And these groups, uh, um, Um, I I can introduce them. One that I first heard about was Zochrot, which means in Hebrew, we remember in plural female form. And it was formed by and for Jewish Israelis in 2002. It seeks to unsettle the defensive stance of most Jewish Israelis uh, towards the Palestinian refugee problem by validating the Palestinian narrative. Um, And it does so by mixing embodied knowledge with factual accounts of pre-48 Palestinian life and their loss in the 48 war and its aftermath. And what they do is they hold tours. All of these groups use tours and testimonies. So Zohrot holds tours of pre-48 Palestinian localities that have been destroyed and uh, they use testimonies by their former residents the refugees that accompany and guide the tours. During the tours, participants also post signs with the name of the locality in Arabic, Hebrew, and English as alternative mapping to that of the Zionist National Park Agency, uh, even if temporarily, because these signs are usually removed by Jewish Israeli hikers soon after. Um, Every tour is um is um um guided by by historiographical research and testimonies and for each locality these research and testimony are collected in the archive and information center in Tel Aviv the aim uh, uh, of this uh, collection or archive is giving voice to alternative accounts that Jewish Israelis don't really know, didn't know, and creating a record of Israeli abuses, but also insisting on its relevance to Israeli Jews and to reconciliation. So it's not just Palestinian catastrophe, Palestinian history, but it's relevant to, Jews, to Israeli Jews and, of course, to reconciliation with Palestinians. In public events, conferences, and exhibitions, the Chot also uses its archive uh, to feature points in which Israeli and Palestinian narratives meet and an integrated history can be created. So that's another point of bridging. The second group is Autobiography of a City. It's a group of Jewish and Palestinian artists who live in Jaffa, a, a binational city. And these artists designed a very sophisticated online archive of, of digital testimonies of pre 48 generation Jaffa residents, mostly Palestinians. Um, these residents uh, are interviewed were interviewed by group members who are not professional interviewers and you can see it in the testimonies and these video recorded testimonies were divided into experts or stories and tagged with keywords and posted online and then each user of the uh, archive each search that you make in the archive is saved as a chain of stories that forms a unique path to the city's past. So it's a your own path of, of stories instead of some official national narrative. And it can also be traced in city space. So it can also be used, the search in the archive can also be used as a map for a walking tour of the city. And then the group invited artists to use the archive materials, the testimonies for site-specific artwork, and in the archive, um, and the archive was uh, uh, intended to serve in the future as also as a pedagogical tool for local schools. And then the last group is Baladna which in Arabic means our homeland. And this is a youth association based in Haifa. It's a Palestinian group. It's led by students and student organizers. And it has um it's active in a dozen Palestinian centers throughout Israel. It holds tours of destroyed Palestinian villages in which participants listen to refugee testimony as part of its annual Young leadership program for Palestinian youth in Israel. So, as part of the program, they also go on tours. And in addition to tours and testimonies, its after school program includes creative and artistic activities, critical discussions about the writing of national history, and community based projects. And um, they also have a news website and a monthly youth magazine, and they meet with other youth groups in the region and the world. Um, and have uh, and have uh, different uh, campaigns. Um, so we have uh, mostly Jewish Israeli groups, Akrot, a Jewish and Palestinian group, Autobiography of a City, and a Palestinian youth group, Baladna, and all of them are critical of national memory, any national memory, Jewish or Palestinian. You can already see from this description that they're interested in. They have a critical approach, and they're interested in stories so stories and and to show the availability of different paths and different stories and different experiences instead of a a one national uh, collective memory
0: i think that's your your point about memory activists too that they're trying to maintain their own independence independent of 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 political groupings uh, on the Israeli or the Palestinian side uh, and and they're challenging dominant memories on on either side um, so w- would you say that it's it's fair that so the common denominator, whether it's uh, an Israeli memory activist group or a, a Palestinian Israeli one that uh, in order to move forward with reconciliation based on this model of South Africa truth and reconciliation, in South Africa, you have to understand this fundamental injustice that happens at the very beginning, the creation of of Israel with uh, the Nakba, the the displacement, the dispossession of this Palestinian population.
1: Right. Um, I mean, I can talk about how they learned about the South African model and what uh, happened when they tried to implement it in Israel. I can do it now or later, but um, um, but these three groups, um, uh, I mentioned that the reconciliation model is a global one and these three groups is coming from an active conflict met through their funders, which are mainly European and American uh, foundations like Oxf- Oxfam and others. They met with activists from post-conflict Places like Northern Ireland and South Africa and the Balkan, the the former Yugoslavia, and they mention these cases and they mention that they want Israel to also, you know, become one of these uh, post-conflict places through this reconciliation model of truth and reconciliation, and they they uh, mention. Uh, South Africa especially, but this model, the South African model, has three stages. Uh, The first one is knowledge, so you want to learn about the atrocities and to document uh, what has happened through testimonies and mapping and other, and hearings, right, other uh, practices, archives, and then, uh, so you want to spread this knowledge, and then you want recognition, of these atrocities, and finally, responsibility or redress. Um, In Israel, however, the uh, knowledge part actually has been successful. Uh, We'll get to it, but in 2011, the state of Israel uh, uh, legislated a law, commonly known as the Nakba Law, that actually bans funding from uh, state-supported institutions who commemorate the Independence Day as a day of mourning. And those who do it, even though they're not mentioned by name, are Palestinians who commemorate the Nakba um, on Independence Day. And they do it uh, for historical reasons. Uh, On that day, they used to during the um, martial law until 66, but actually it's not on the same day. Nakba law is on May 15 and Independence Day, Changes, but it doesn't usually doesn't coincide. But this law uh, was legislated, <laughs> uh, nevertheless, and uh, Zochrot at least views the Nakba law as a success, as a testi- testimony to the success of disseminating Nakba, uh, 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 the, the information about the Nakba among the Jewish Israeli society. Indeed, many Israelis didn't know; most Israelis didn't know what the Nakba was. It's a it's a word in Arabic, uh, until debates um uh, mounted in the process of legislation legislating the Nakba law that tries to prevent this uh, commemoration of the commemoration of this event. Um so uh, now Israelis, Jewish Israelis know what the Nakba is, and for the this is basically a mandate that was filled However, they were very disappointed to find out that it didn't uh, that recognition didn't follow and certainly not responsibility or redress because in post-conflict situations like South Africa, the state or the new government, um, is the one that's uh, doing these three stages: the knowledge in hearings and uh, commit commission, truth and reconciliation commission that publishes a report with recommendations and a change, a structural change, uh, and redress. Uh, but uh, in Israel, Palestine, in Israel, the government, as I mentioned before, was interested in. Uh, reproducing the conflict through this zero sum game of memories um and other means and so the state so they basically were operating against the state against state uh, uh, official memory and narration of the past in light of the conflict um so not only the, the recognition didn't follow the circulation of knowledge about the nakba but uh, there was negative <laughs> recognition Until today, uh, some uh, right-wing politicians warn Palestinians against a second Nakba, so not only they don't recognize this as an atrocity, uh, they actually justify it, uh, and they're not the only ones. And so certainly this model kind of broke in Israel. But if you think about it, and I have (laughs) uh, thought about the post-conflict model, then It is probably uh, in also in post-conflict cases that the recognition and the will to take responsibility come before the knowledge, because in the hearings, you have victims and perpetrators sitting together. In places like Rwanda, you have neighbors, some have been victims, some have been perpetrators, and they're supposed to go back to living together. And so without the will to take responsibility and recognition, the knowledge cannot actually be spread
0: in any case. But that that will to take responsibility, that could be top-down or bottom-up. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's the government that has to have the willingness. It could be the people.
1: Right. So in other cases, um, it was the people or civil society that initiated the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions or in Zuchot's case, a truth commission, right? Reconciliation is something that they can only uh, look to in the future. Uh, And they did it for a region of the country, the region where I teach, the the Negev. Uh, So they did, uh, in 2015, they actually um, organized a truth commission for uh, the south of Israel, for the Negev. And in other places, uh, there were initiatives truth uh, and reconciliation initiatives outside state channels. It's true.
0: So you point out that, well, this backlash to uh, challenging the dominant memory uh, through the Nakba law ends up creating more of an awareness of 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 that other understanding of 1948. Um, but there's also the work of these memory activists, Uh and you mentioned they use tours, they use testimonials. Um, where does this strategy come from of trying to promote awareness of 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 1948 in a, in a new way, a new understanding of this past?
1: Right. So uh, it was another thing that uh, that was really interesting to me. Again, not only that they are turning that they're uh, um, focusing on a. Taboo uh, period in the past, very contested past, but they also use very familiar memory practices. In fact, memory practices that the state and the Zionist uh, establishment before the state used. Tours and testimonies have been long standing tools of Zionist education and indoctrination, first among the Jewish settlers and later in the state. Um, Tours have been, and still are today, a Zionist pedagogical practice that settlers and then school kids like me were encouraged to incorporate. Um, Taking hikes around the country uh, was uh, termed conquering the land with our feet. This is the Hebrew term, but it was seen as a tool for cultivating not remote History book knowledge, but experiential learning that is supposed to create personal or emotional attachment to the land, right? Because these Jewish settlers came from Europe and they were supposed to love their biblical homeland, but they didn't know it. So this was a a pedagogical tool, the tours and survivor testimonies became well known through a testimonial culture in Israel, Not only in Israel, but in Israel it's associated mainly with the memory of of the Holocaust, especially since the Eichmann trial. And so these Nakba memory activists, instead of inventing new practices, creatively appropriated these highly familiar memory practices of the state, basically, infusing them with new meaning, Palestinian instead of exclusively Jewish Israeli or Jewish, Jewish Zionist memory. And so they, as I mentioned, conduct tours of pre-state Palestinian ruins and collect testimonies of the former Palestinian residents uh, in archives. Um, so it, it's, it's, that, that is uh, part of what drew, drew me to this uh, topic because I heard about Zohrot and then I joined its tour and realized that actually it was very familiar for me because we do, we did the same format or the same uh, scenario of touring the land uh, every year in school. So it's something that uh, Jewish Israelis, uh, they don't even notice. It's so known. It's so familiar to them that through this familiar practice, you can actually insert new knowledge. And when they see the Palestinian, uh, uh, refugee, the former resident leading the tour and telling them about the life here, his family. They again have a chance to realize not only their own attachment to the land, but also his or her attachment to the same place. And what most struck, what striked uh, those who I interviewed after the, the tours of Zohrot was how much was missing from the zionist tours how much wasn't seen there and that they could now see and they even said we could see the whole country differently now even after one tour so they were astonished by how exclusive and excluding the zionist tour that they were so familiar with
0: was so it was an eye-opening experience for you because i was i was curious to about your reaction, having gone on this tour for the first time, you you felt like it, it did resonate with you and you felt like that was a, the, the reaction that uh, other Israelis had on these tours.
1: Right. Because when you are going on a tour of Palestinian experiences and especially personal, uh, um, you know, atrocious experiences of something that is completely gone, it's, um, I mean it's it's emotional to you, but you also have defenses and you have to um it's 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 also foreign to you but through the tour because it's so familiar uh, the format to walk to listen to the guide to look at uh, where he's pointing at, uh, to imagine what was there. this is what tours do in general, then they project a specific uh, past on a certain site then uh, it's it's easier to to listen and to imagine how life were there before to realize something about tours in uh, themselves and most of these memory activists they are astonished by how exclusive was the zionist tour but they don't see tours critically even though they realize that the tours that they were used to are excluding, they still see tours. this tour as eye-opening. They don't think that every tour projects a specific past on a specific site, and that's what you see, and that's what you believe. So it was interesting. I later later on talked to um, people who were in Zuchot's tour guide uh, training and we discussed this issue because tours are so familiar that people really think they're completely, people are blind <laughs> towards this memory practice. And I'm very interested in memory practices, this one and the testimony, that I could uh, also um, expand my understanding of these practices, when even when used by activists.
0: So I was driving to work uh, yesterday, and it's around the one-year anniversary of the the war in Ukraine, and uh, listening to a podcast, and it was featuring the memories of several different ordinary Ukrainians, and it wasn't people on the front lines. It was just people talking about life before the war, what happened after, how it affected their personal relationships, and this really made me think of, of... of what you're writing about, because the memories that are being conveyed through tours, uh, through the testimonials, are memories of everyday life. And you mentioned that often memories of women are 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 prioritized. Uh, uh, what makes those particular memories particularly powerful? If you're trying to change an understanding of of a past, a past that you could understand politically, 1948 politi- politically or militarily. You're, you're taking a particular angle on this by looking at regular, ordinary people, regular life, not, not battles, soldiers, conflicts, heroes. Uh, it, they're, they're particular memories that are being used here to, uh, to try to further this process of reconciliation.
1: Right. You're absolutely right. So since uh, social history has been uh, developed as opposed to history of governments and kings and queens and heroes, um, there's been, I don't know if it's more democratic, but it's looking at Every, everyday practices that ordinary people, among them women, and Zuchot uh, not uh, that's that's zochot's name in Hebrew. It's in female form. We remember and baladna also um, brings many testimonies by Palestinian women um, and not just by men to as a way to uh, um, give an alternative to the state and the um um kind of macro or um uh male dominated history that uh, that usually or used to uh, rule or get the the, the main uh, um stage and so this everyday memory is a symbol of uh looking um First of all more critically uh, finding heroes in just regular people and and uh, looking paying attention to what women did uh, in uh, historical events like the Nakba and not only the men uh, these are people who historically have not been heard so their memories were not collected in archives, you don't read them in uh, ceremonies, national ceremonies and commemoration days, and um, uh, collecting a record of stories and personal experiences um, is on, not only uh, uh, provides a fuller picture or sheds light on unknown aspects of everyday life, in a specific period, for example, pre-state Palestine and also during the Nagpur, the Independence War of Israel, but also, um, let's say, does justice or gives voice to those whose voice was unheard and silenced. So as a memory activist groups, they also want to... to, to, to give voice and to accommodate uh, those memories.
0: It's really a universalist approach too, right? You're, if you're looking at the ordinary, the everyday families, women, you you can can transcend political divisions.
1: Right, that too, because um in some cases, especially Zachot I mentioned, tries to find places where both, let's say, an Israeli general's account of a village that was raided uh, in '48 and the residents' account actually match. And you can do an integrated history. Uh, so not a division, this narrative versus that narrative, but actually you can maybe find what happened and create a history that is uh, agreed <laughs> by, uh, upon by both sides and maybe reconcile through, through that. And those accounts are not are not uh, apparent in state archives, at least not of the, uh, the certainly not uh, um, putting these narratives side by side. But also, um, you only you mostly have state documents, but you don't really have the other side especially in the Palestinian case, but also in other cases of populations that have been displaced and their documents um, uh, you know, are missing. Um, and so you have testimonies to rely on if you want to find out what happened.
0: So if you're looking at um, Israeli and, and Palestinian-Israeli memory initiatives, there's this common desire to to uh question and and uh, create a new awareness of of 1948 um, but there's also a very different in agenda uh, you mentioned for the palestinian org- organizations palestinian israeli organizations that they're also geared much more towards community building whether it's in a particular place or whether it's uh, across a national space um, could you talk about this uh, a little bit? Uh, how, how is the memory work of Palestinian-Israeli mem- initiatives, how does it have a different uh, uh, different purpose?
1: Right. So I mentioned this uh, shared um, call for one-sided acknowledgement of Israeli acknowledging um, 48 and the Nakba. And, um, so uh, after Oslo, this one-sided uh, um, uh, call also meant one-sided activism. So Jewish Israelis work among Jewish Israelis, like Soho does, with the help of Palestinians, of course, to tell their own history. And uh, Baladna is an example of uh, Palestinians working within the, the Palestinian society in Israel. And obviously they have different um, motivations in which, as you mentioned, the Palestinian memory activists are um, more focused on their own society. They say, for example, it's not my job to teach the Palestinian the Israelis about the Nakba. <laughs> um, and again, it's also the post Oslo, the post binational meetings, uh, um, uh, change of paradigm. And so they work to um, empower Palestinian youth. Uh, part of it is learning about their own history, but again, in a critical way towards any national narrative and uh, and doing this leadership program in which at the end they have a project within their own local community uh, that's not necessarily related to history. It could be, but it doesn't have to. Um, and their hope is uh, that someone would enforce Israelis to recognize the Nakba. So there'll be some sort of pressure Uh, to hold the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, some maybe pressure from outside, so they don't trust that the government, the state would ever recognize, would ever redress. And so they keep the record, and they hope for places for commemoration, even adopting the Israeli state practices, as mentioned, tours and testimonies. They said, we hope, you know, we don't have a a Yad Vashem. We, We also want a National Archive, uh, but we don't have one. So they also seek to build an infrastructure of memory, which is unfortunately outside state channels, um, not accepted by the state. Whereas Jewish-Israeli activists, um, they see um, airing the Nakba and, um, and um, changing the defense mechanism of Jewish-Israelis, of most Jewish-Israelis as... Uh, giving voice to Palestinians, um, uh, validating their validating their accounts, so giving them this recognition, um, and also as a trust-building step among Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. So first we acknowledge, we learn, and we acknowledge what we did to you, and maybe in the future you will be willing to reconcile. This is the one-sided approach uh, that uh, the Jewish-Israeli memory activists um, stated to me. So it's a different uh, uh, way of seeing. But did the Jewish memory activists, uh, as I mentioned, also look to the global memory uh, par- uh, reconciliation paradigm and hope that Israel or think that Israel will eventually have to address the Nakba um so they hope that that will
0: happen. But Palestinian memory, act, Israeli memory activists, if they're, if they're trying to achieve, use the past to achieve a greater sense of, of solidarity within their community, I mean, they're, they're still, they still see themselves as part of Israeli society, right? They still, they're still, they still want to belong, to be accepted, right? It's not the use of the past to move off in a separatist direction, right?
1: So they're not, it's not that I, I mean, they are a sort of a third party to the conflict because they are Israeli citizens, but in fact they have uh, fewer rights. They're discriminated uh, in various ways, although they're citizens and they're supposed to have equal rights. Um, the start starting point that many of these youth leaders mentioned to me was that as Palestinian um uh, teenagers in Israel grow up, they realize that they don't, that they get, that they're not accepted either by Jewish Israelis or by Palestinians outside of Israel. That they have, a, it was called um, double marginality, that they're uh, marginal twice first by Jewish Israelis, their fellow citizens. They share the same state, but also to uh, by Palestinians with whom they share the, nation, the national community. And so Baladna works for a specific and also with a specific memory for
0: Palestinian citizens of Israel. And, and you argue that the challenge is how do you challenge the dominant memory while using... M- dominant memory forms like testimonials and tours and, and try to question them at the same time. I think you you, you point out at least in the Palestinian-Israeli memory work, um, often they work at cross-purposes intentionally that, that, that undercuts their authority.
1: Right. So the Jaffan Group, Autobiography of a City in its Archive, Uh, has these interviews uh, uh, with Palestinian uh, residents of Jaffa about life before 48 and what happened during the Nakba. Jaffa was not even part of the partition plan. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be part of Israel. It was an enclave, an independent enclave, but it was occupied by Israel and it became part of Israel. Um, And so these interviews are... Uh, edited into excerpts, uh, stories and put in this archive and the the um, design of the archive I mentioned is meant to underly, underlie or to, uh, I'm sorry, is meant to um, challenge any sort of one story, one narrative, total narrative by giving different, very small, tiny stories about both of life and of the war. And so you have various accounts, some of them contradictive. Uh, And so on the one hand, they want to give voice to Palestinians during very long interviews, video interviews. And in the interviews, you see that the interviewers and the interviewees are part of the same community sometimes. So they say, yeah, you know, the neighbor and her name is this or that. Um, you kind of realize that there are actually neighbors, I mean, those who want to capture the voices and those who are interviewed. But then the archive itself is meant to criticize any attempt to create a total or single memory of the past. So these are contradicting uh, giving voice and then undermining um, one story or only giving these different paths in the archive that the user of the archive creates or users of the archive create many chain of stories, many paths in the city's past. Um, um, So these are the somewhat contradicting um, purposes or practices of, uh, of this archive of testimonies in Jaffa.
0: So if you're trying to achieve a, a a stronger sense of community identity by reclaiming your past but then that past becomes a mosaic that you can select from individually right and at the same time there is no archive that you can go to uh it, it, to me it seems like you're doubly disadvantaged uh i i think unless you if you think that that memory you have to have a dominant narrative for it to, to work and survive huh?
1: Right, so that's, that's a part of, um, I think, um, this, this, um, work, uh, memory activist work that, um, that basically these activists are post-national. I mean, they do use the same platform memory that states use to cultivate national identity, and they do use the same practices that Israel uses. Uh, because they're very familiar. Um, But at the end, these activists are post-national, so they don't really believe in national memory. Uh, Jaffa specifically, the Palestinian community, is very polarized and uh, kind of um, um, dissolved. And so even recording these interviews and creating an archive is already something that... Uh, brings these people together around the past, but not everyone wants to talk about the Nakba among Palestinians. Some are traumatized. For others, it's too political, as the uh, Baladna youth leaders um, testify to as to what the parents of these youth uh, are worried about. Um, and so in Jaffa, it's an act of bringing the community together, and also for Baladna, where memory is only part of the, the leadership program. But um, but but this very critical notion of collective memory could also limit uh, um, the creation of 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 identity. I don't know if solidarity, but uh, of identity. So they cross borders. They want to um, cross or dissolve the borders between. Israelis and Palestinians, national borders, ethno-national borders, but in fact they want to just transcend (laughs) national borders and and, you know
0: um, Okay, so there's a generational dimension to this and I think you mentioned it's the third generation, whether it's the Israeli side or the Palestinian Israeli side that's doing much of the memory work uh, um, but I think you also mentioned for the Palestinians Israelis there's a lot of resistance to this, right, that, that uh, this is still a minority current that's, that's engaged in this memory activism that uh, most people seem to be, uh, what, how would you describe it, move, to want to move in the direction of uh, integration, inclusion, uh, uh, leaving aside identity issues. Of course not.
1: And the situation has only gotten more nationalistic and populist. I mean, since then, and even then, of course, the majority uh, is um, completely um, uh, following the framework of the 0 sum game of narratives and viewing those who commemorate the other as also collaborating with the other when their own national community is... Under, um, conflict, under threat. This is how most Jewish Israelis view it. So, Zohrot activists, Jewish uh, Israeli activists are, um, threatened. They've been raided by the police. And there are many sanctions that only grow since, uh, in the, in the following decade f- from 2011 onward. Uh, Baladna continues to work and even expanded to additional localities, uh, but mainly within the Palestinian community and for communal projects. And Autobiography of a City, unfortunately, um, lost its budget, so the website is right now not really updated um, and so it kind of shows that uh, this an issue. And, and Zuchot, I'm sorry, once used to have a very big budget, mainly by European uh, foundations, but, but it suffered a uh, loss of uh, funders um, and had to do some cutbacks. Um, so, of course, despite the fact that Nakba memory became more widespread, or the Nakba at least, people know what the Nakba is, although they don't recognize it, um, these organizations remain marginal, um, and the mainstream only becomes more right-wing and populist, and this uh, includes the current crisis of what remains of Israeli democracy. Uh, so of course it's not a uh, the mainstream, far from it.
0: Hmm. So how do you explain, on the one hand, if you're adopting this um, truth and reconciliation historical justice model and that you move from knowledge to aware, to uh, uh, acknowledgement to responsibility, you achieve the, 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 the knowledge part, but you can't move on to the... Why can't you move on to the second stage? What? What? Why is there resistance to, uh, to extending acknowledgement to uh, to taking responsibility? Why is there? Uh, it seems like there's a backlash to this. At least if you look at the Nakba law, if you look at the changes to how history is taught in schools, if you look at the direction the government is going in, uh, how? What's the how, how? would you explain this disconnect between a broadening of a, of of understanding uh, and then you can't move on to this those next stages? Why can't it work in that direction?
1: So there are differences between co- active conflict and post conflict. There, it's a generalization. And again, in mid in in mid conflict, still civil society organization keep record and conduct. Um, 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 uh, studies and try to disseminate the atrocities and so on but uh, we can say generally that there are a few differences between post-conflict and mid-conflict uh, one is, is the state so the government is in mid-conflict in this case against the efforts to acknowledge the other sides um um the violence against the other side because it's uh, it afraid to um to t- and it's afraid to take responsibility because if the peace talks renew one day it would have to pay more redress there'll be consequences uh, to such an acknowledgement so the government tries to evade it tries to um uh, negate it and tries to control the discourse even although that doesn't always usually doesn't work um and the second ch- uh, difference is temporality so your model for change when you're in a post conflict um situation is that you want to put this past behind and you conduct all these hearings and and, and knowledge, acknowledgement, because you want to, and, and you want to pay redress and put this past behind So to cultivate solidarity and stability in the post-conflict society, create post-conflict identities, and so unite around a post-conflict memory, but when you're in mid-conflict, then the temporality of your model for change is different. You are trying to um, stop events that are already happening. You are trying to um, work against the inevitability of events. Uh, so, uh, if the Nakba is includes, the event includes not allowing return until today, and it's a continuous event, as these member activists describe it, uh, plus you have the occupation uh, that's ongoing um, and strikes on Gaza and so on, then what they're trying to do is not put this past behind, but actually make it very present uh, in an effort to stop what's happening right now. And so... Um, and, and so these two differences, I think, are the the reason why this model broke in post in in this active conflict case.
0: Uh, one thing that surprised me uh, reading uh, a recent Thomas Friedman article was the degree of uh, success, at least at a significant percentage of of uh, Israeli Israeli Palestinians have enjoyed that. That uh, I think Friedman mentions that they're twenty one percent of Israel's population, but they're twenty percent of its doctors, twenty five percent of its nurses, almost half of its pharmacists. So, in many respects, uh, this is an incredibly. I mean, there is another side to the story <laughs> as well. There is a significant percentage of that population that ha, ha, it has serious difficulties, but there is also a, a, a huge success story. Uh, And at least he argues in part that if there's a backlash, uh, if if a government moves in the direction of the right, that it's a backlash to the success story, that that more Israelis are living in close proximity with Israeli Palestinians, that they're hearing uh, Arabic more often in their communities, that, that there's coexistence is becoming more of a daily reality and there's resistance to this i'm not sure whether that's another way of 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 understanding the nakba law how history is taught in schools the resistance to uh, to taking responsibility
1: right it's an interesting um uh, reasoning or interpretation but um I think that despite the economic uh, mobility or mobilization of uh, Palestinian citizens, um, it still has, uh, Palestinians in Israel still are also in other aspects in the low uh, places in terms of uh, localities, uh, infrastructure, um, uh, poverty and other um other uh, structural aspects, but some of them uh, get uh, economic mobility and indeed move to Jewish-dominated places, but they're treated according to the political discourse that always um, or increasingly marginalizes them as um, his quote of a uh, um, right-wing... persona uh, speaking um, against this mobilization Um, it's true that that Palestinians are in additional um, areas of the job market and uh, many Palestinian women are in higher education getting their degrees and entering into the academia and job market but um, the government and the elections are still increasingly um, excluding them, marginalizing them. Uh, Center-left coalitions are not formed because even center-left parties do not wish to incorporate Palestinian parties in Israel. And so a right-wing coalition forms And actually, the person who broke this um, glass ceiling was Bibi Netanyahu, who incorporated an Islamic party, Ra'am, but uh, that ended as well. Um, But he's probably the only one who dared to incorporate Palestinians. At the same time, he's also responsible for uh, speaking against them, and mobilizing Jewish Israelis against Palestinians, against left-wing uh, Israelis. So I think the conflict is what frames political discourse, and this uh, uh, also shapes the approach to Palestinians, whether you meet Palestinians or... Um, as neighbors, which still is not so common, or you um, meet them uh, um, in the pharmacy or as doctors. It um, d- depends on so your approach to them uh, and their status, their cultural status, are still um, pretty low. Uh, and this is because of the political discourse that incites against them as as an enemy so in terms of the conflict
0: so what are your what are your feelings at present that if there was hope beginning in the 2000s that maybe you could use history as another strategy of achieving reconciliation uh and you could make significant headway even in a very difficult challenging context Uh, that context has become even more difficult (laughs) and even more challenging do you think that this strategy is, this, is, is there any hope left in the strategy? If, if the goal is to try to uh, move towards, uh, move from an underst- understanding, uh, knowledge to responsibility, uh, and it doesn't have to come from the top down, it could be just trying to achieve a broad enough uh, hold within the population.
1: Right. So there are many criticisms of this reconciliation uh, paradigm or model uh, uh, in other cases as well. And sort of a a disappointment of its promise to change uh, memory of violent histories from a... Limitation to reconciliation to an asset, so something that incites conflict to something that could put the conflict behind, could overcome it. Um, but um, and there are various reasons why and how to improve the this model. But in Israel specifically, and from what I, uh, in light of the Israeli case, think about. South Africa or post-conflict cases, it is clear that structural changes, redress, should take place first and then the recognition or otherwise the recognition might remain empty or even um, hide continuing injustices, structural injustices. And for a structural reform, it's really uh <laughs> it's really hard to foresee it coming again benjamin netanyahu uh, the israeli prime minister did uh, give funding um and budgets to an islamic party for palestinians in israel uh and this was maybe the closest moment to um structural change, not in not a, a, a completely a redistribution or something like that, but some sort of investment in Palestinian citizens. But that ended as well. And right now, perhaps the hope is that the various groups in Israeli society that are, that are fighting against the populist government that tries to undo uh, what's re- what remains of Israeli democracy, that they unite and realize that uh, every minority uh, could suffer from the um, this legislative reform that the government is really rapidly trying to um, legislate and approve, uh, and maybe through this crisis... Uh, the groups will come together but but still the protest is also framed as a jewish one and palestinians are only now maybe joining so we'll have to speak again and see what happened (laughs) these events are unfolding as we speak
0: Yifat gutman is a senior lecturer in the department of sociology and anthropology at ben-gurion university of the negev in israel She is the author of Memory Activism, Reimagining the Past for the Future in Israel-Palestine. Ifat, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory.
1: Of course. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me.
0: Next month, we turn to the Philippines. We'll talk with John Lee Candelaria, assistant professor at the University of Hiroshima, about his work on war memories in Southeast Asia and the Philippines in particular. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.